G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC. So thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the show at any time, you can download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing. But today, I'd like to introduce you to Amelia Ganslant, who is doing a Master of Environmental Studies under the supervision of Dr. Alison Goebel. Welcome to Grad Chat, Amelia. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good. And Amelia, just so you know, Amelia and I were just having a bit of a, a bit of a laugh because you know what happens with uh, colder weather and the air gets really dry. And I don't know about some of you, but normally that means I'm going to get a nosebleed at the most inopportune time. And of course, just before we started this recording, that's exactly what happened. So poor Amelia is sitting here having to look at me with a bit of a cotton bud stuck up my nose. But it's working, isn't it, Amelia? <laughs> it is, yeah, no blood yet. <laughs> no, no blood. So um, in my poor you know, Queen's jumper, I'm going to have to go and uh, fix up later. But anyway, as they say, the show must go on. And luckily, it's not live TV. That's all I can say. It's, it's radio, so fantastic there. Now, so we're in for a bit of a treat as Amelia is what is called a young climate activist. And because of that, or maybe because of that, her research topic is exploring the methods and goals of the young climate movement. So as I do from time to time, you know, I looked look this up to ensure I understand what young climate movement was. And of course, I went to Wikipedia. In the old days, it used to be the Encyclopedia Britannica, but now it's Wikipedia. And it says the youth climate movement or international youth climate movement refers to an international network of youth organizations that collectively aims to inspire, empower and mobilize a generational movement of young people to take positive action on climate change. What do you think about that statement? Does that kind of sum up what your your thoughts were or your understanding of uh, youth climate movement? Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty accurate. I think it's important that it mentions that it's not just the strikes, which we tend to see most in the news. Right. That's that's a very good point, too. And I think the other bit that I liked about it, because sometimes you think of a movement, it's one movement, but it's lots of different organizations that it, it explains. And I think that's important because what what you might might want to do here in Canada could be different to another country uh, and things like that. So I guess one of the things I would like to know first, before we get more into what you're doing, why do you see yourself as a climate activist? Yeah, so I've always been interested in the environment and from a really young age, but the more I started to learn about it, the more worried as a lot of youth I got. And I was frustrated with that, knowing everything about what was going to happen, but still not seeing that sort of response from politicians. That's when I became involved in. And as your family environmentalist, so I mean, because what's the difference between an environmentalist and a climate activist? Yeah, I think they're very similar. Environmentalism in general tends to focus more on 
domestic or not uh, sort of regional issues. You focus on a lot of issues you can sort of see clear cutting and biodiversity loss and things that are very tangible. While the climate movement obviously is focusing on this international issue that in many ways may not be enough that uh, one country stops emitting CO2. So it's really targeting sort of an international issue. It's, it's interesting, actually, because if we just look at the pandemic, uh, the pandemic was probably one time in a long time that the world has actually got together to try and fix an issue. Still not there. And there's still, <laughs> there's still pockets of the world that need more help. But it made the world listen. And of course, this is, I guess, is what you're trying to do with your with the youth movement um, mm-hmm. to get the whole world speaking together on a collective idea. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels, both in how we trying to get people to act collectively and for collective good, but also sort of the justice issues within an issue like COVID or the climate issue, which won't affect everyone, does it? Right. So you've got a really good topic there, haven't you? Because, I mean, the climate movement is a big topic at the moment. And, you know, if it's not COVID, it's what's happening to the environment and climate change and all those sorts of things. So you've got a Maybe too much information that's going to come in for you, but you've got a lot of information to, to, to draw from in your work. So as I explained, you know, you're exploring the methods and goals of the young climate movement. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what you're trying to accomplish within that? Yeah, so the first part of what I'm trying to accomplish is give the youth a voice in academia. While the young climate movement has gotten a lot of attention in sort of public media and in the news, they're still very unfeatured in academic studies, which means that there isn't really a recording of what methods they see themselves using. Uh, There's only a recording of what the news actually captures. So really trying to map out that. Well, it's interesting that you said that because you're right with this kind of topic. It's it's what the news tells us that most Mm -hmm. of us understand what's going on. And, And I've got a little note here, for instance, all these groups around the world, these youth groups, if I've understood the information correctly, started back in Rio at the Earth Summit in 1992. And I'm sure there was things before that, but that's the one mm-hmm. that, again, that perhaps the media has captured. And then in Canada, uh, I understand we have something called the Canadian Youth Climate Coalition that started in 2006, which had 48 or maybe still has, I don't know, 48 youth organisations across Canada. So you can see how a momentum has started, but the things that are being in Wikipedia, for instance, are p- potentially what the news has told us, which, mm-hmm. is, which, as you said, can be great in one way, but it's not really getting to the meat of exactly everything that is being done on underneath. So in your study, I know you're looking at, you know, what's being done in the academic side of things of, of looking into this. Are you looking at Canadian or global groups? And then where does someone like, you know, the Greta Thunberg fit into all of this? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm specifically focusing on Canada for this study, uh, both in terms of sort of trying to have a homogenous sample, because if we start looking at other countries, there's a lot of different factors. Right. But also because, again, Canada is really diverse and there are all these organizations that do a lot of different methods. So I did interview people from Fridays for Future, which is the organization Greta Thunberg started. Mm-hmm. But I've also 
quite actively try to move away from that narrative that the movement is only Fridays for Future, which again sort of has become a misconception that that is the movement. So I've interviewed organizations that's used everything from entrepreneurship to documentary making and conferences to achieve their goals. So when you talk about achieving their goals, because that's, you know, I think if I read this correctly, you're, you're focusing on organizations, objectives and goals, the means and methods they use to achieve them and how they perceive the movement as a whole. You've mentioned a couple there. Are there a lot of differences between the objectives? Because everyone would think the main goal is we've got to get the police to snap out of it and start doing something now before it is too late. And it's already getting to, to the point of being too late. So are you finding a lot of differences in terms of the primary objective Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, obviously, everybody has the objective to solve the climate crisis. But within that, there's a lot of sort of different goals that the different organizations have. One unifying goal is that they're really trying to empower youth and give youth a voice in this debate, which again, right. they've been left out of, or when they have been included, sort of very tokenism, tokenism. or, yeah, it's done as a sort of performative action by a state or, um, an organization. But then there's differences too in sort of some organizations thinking that they should target very local policies and they're focusing very much on specific chapters of banks, for example, or focusing on very local uh, policies, while others are much more broader and that there should be global action on uh, climate. So it's quite a bit there, right? Yeah, quite a bit there. <laughs> okay, so I mean, you give me gave me an idea of why you wanted to be involved in it, but why do other young people become involved in in climate issues? I mean, it's a brainer, really, but I'm sure you've heard of lots of reasons, even in with the young the the groups that you're involved in, why people wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different sort of avenues people come to the climate movement from, but it's important to remember too that not everybody comes because they're terrified which is again sort of how media is portrayed that youth come to this movement because they're terrified of their future and they're terrified of what's going to happen but there's also a lot of people come to this movement because they see it as a form of building a community and they see it as a very something they're passionate about and uh, something they really want to pursue so there's a broad spectrum of why people are drawn to it but I think people are tired of politicians not listening and not taking youth serious now is an overarching and so when we okay and one thing i probably should ask at the beginning when we say youth what age group is is that <laughs> what, what's the limit of a youth so a youth it's actually much harder than we think to define it's it's often seen as either from 15 to 24 or 15 to 30 but it's important to think about that you're how people see youth and what age you're considered a youth is very much influenced by where you are from in the world or even your community and sort of expectations on that. But it's seen as this transition between childhood and adulthood. Right. Okay. Well, that makes, that makes sense. It's interesting you say, you know, not child, but if you look at in, in school, for instance, with the elementary schools here in Canada, isn't that where we want to get our children already thinking about this issue and what they can be doing in their drawings and plays and things already? Do we not want to get them kind of involved? 
Yeah, and I think a lot of schools are talking about this and a lot of children are coming out to the strikes. I try to avoid the narrative that we need to teach children or youth anything. I think kids are politically active to begin with and they're politically inclined and they just have that capability naturally. But but yes, I think that movement is starting. It's starting. Oh, that's good. So why is it? I mean, you're here, you're talking about it. I'm assuming you're... Uh, I'm going to absolutely assume that you fit within that category. Uh, (laughs) Why is it important to include youth and feature their voices in climate research? Not necessarily in the climate activism, but in the climate research. Yeah. So I think there's, again, it's sort of twofold. First, this they're the stakeholders in this and they're the ones performing these actions. When we talk about them without including them, It's very easy to draw wrong conclusions about what they actually want. It's very easy to reduce them down to simple things like that. They're just arguing, listen to the science, which I find isn't true in my research. But also, again, not including youth further marginalizes them as a social group and makes their voices seem insignificant. That's a good point. I haven't thought about how it can marginalize them. You're absolutely right there. And just looking at some of the other things you've got here. Is there much literature on what these youth groups are doing right now? I mean, was it difficult to find? I mean, I mentioned before that back in 2006, there was 48 youth organisations. But what is what literature is there on those organisations? There is some on environmental youth movements and a lot from sort of the 70s when we saw a big wave of environmental youth movements. Right. 70s. But the last few years, there really isn't much. There is a few articles. And as I said earlier, it tends to be Fridays for Future and they're focused right. on solely on Fridays for Future. Right. And talking about that, and very few actually have talked to the youth themselves. Oh, is that so right? it's very limited still. <laughs> so I think one of the, the main things you're saying here is I mean, the narrative has not been probably broadcast in the media as to what these youth groups are trying to to do in the first place. So how, how do you think you can change that narrative that's going out there at the moment? I think it's really important to talk to them, like the youth themselves. Also recognizing that the organizations are very different and not assuming that even one chapter of Fridays for Future may not have the same goals as another chapter. So really talking to specific people as them representing themselves or their organizations, not the whole movement. It's it's interesting because you would think with something like this, you would all have the same objective and it makes it difficult then that when you don't so groups like Fridays for Future is going to have be prominent and the rest of the things that you're trying to do are going to be pushed to one side so what group are you with right now I've been involved in the Fridays for Future strikes I've also been involved in a few entrepreneurship initiatives that focus on solution building with entrepreneurship and now I'm involved in a group in Kingston that also focuses on lobbying politicians to take climate action And how do you recruit for for something like that? So a lot of recruiting in youth organizations in general is people bringing their friends and people talking to their friends about it and being sort of leaders in their communities and getting other people involved that way. And how do you do it? Because one of the things, I mean, I'm all for activism, but I'm also 
for my personally nice activism if if, that, <laughs> if that's the if that's the right peaceful activism i mean i'm not i'm not one i'm not kind of person that wants to go on strikes or or things but if there's a good cause i want it to be heard i'm always the kind of the person can we find a nice solution to get around this which obviously comes to a point when if the polys aren't listening you have to do a bit more potentially but how do you make sure that the group that you want to be involved in is one that can provide some potential solutions without going overboard and then suddenly being clapped in jail kind of thing bit of an overstatement probably <laughs> but you know what I mean because sometimes you know those things go a bit bit too far and rightly or wrongly you know people can get themselves in trouble and that's not really what you want to do is to get people in trouble but you want to get the point across of why we're there in the first place a lot of organizations i've talked to are very cautious of this and know that especially organizations that focus on issues like pipelines and the expansion of the fossil fuel industry that have had confrontation with the rcmp have had confrontation with military and often indigenous communities in those situations being disproportionately targeted all of these organizations focus on everybody being clearly aware of what the risks are and right. trying not to escalate a situation where people aren't prepared right. uh, to take on those risks. So I think really organizations are trying to do it by communicating clearly with their members about what they can expect right. from that uh, action and right. what the risks are. Oh, well, that, that's good. And so I, I guess, I mean, I want to get back to your, your research it's, uh, as well. How do you navigate interviewing young climate activists as a youth activist yourself? I mean, where are you finding the people to talk to, to help you with your your own research, but also knowing you're a youth activist yourself? I mean, this has been a big part of my research. Uh, Again, I think I have sort of had this unique position compared to other researchers on this topic because I am still a youth myself or view myself as a youth still and am still part of these movements in my private life. So that has been part of it. I have not interviewed any organizations or chapters that I am part of myself. I've interviewed other chapters. It's in one way been really hopeful and has given me a lot of hope to talk to all these organizations doing very cool and very innovative things. So how are you going to write this up? It's <laughs> a tricky thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually finishing my, my, or my project right now, uh, writing it up in a report. But a lot of it, at the end of the day, I've kept as many quotes as possible. I've kept them in the exact words. The youth themselves said it because I want it to be as close to a co-authorship as possible. I want their voices to be the center and the analysis of it to be theirs as much as possible instead of me drawing conclusions about their words and their views uh, of the work. That's very admirable because right from the get-go, you said, you know, youth voices are not being heard. So you are giving the youth voice an opportunity to be heard within your your research which I think is like I said very admirable because it'd be easy to take that away so well done on that what else can you tell me about you know I mean you're doing a master's master's is not very long Uh, did you find it difficult getting enough people to put their hand up to be able to talk to and if that was the case how did you get around that There were a few hurdles, one being that I did my interviews running up to Conference of the Parties or COP was happening in Glasgow, which is obviously the continuation of where the Paris Agreement was uh, written. And 
that meant that a lot of organizations were very focused on, you know, getting people there or advocating on what they wanted the politicians to talk about, meaning they had very little time left over. There's also a lot of youth are involved in these organizations without any compensation, which means that everything they do is in their free time, uh, right. which youth, again, have very little of. <laughs> yes. uh, and then the big issue with any youth organization is that you age out. And that means organizations that are there one day may not be there a year later. Ah, okay. <laughs> so just finding organizations was a bit hard. I know you said you wanted to concentrate on the Canadian context. Did you find in any of your literature reviews and things some good examples of organizations from outside of Canada that potentially Canadians could be considering as part of their platform? Yeah, I think... It's difficult to compare countries because almost all research has been done in the European or North American context, Oh, okay. which again yeah. is very similar to Canada and sort of has the same organization. If anything, more research needs to be done in the front line, the countries that are on the front line of climate change, where youth have quite different priorities because it affects their livelihoods and their sort of maybe their homes or their parents um, and families' homes. Some of the youth that you interviewed, did you find their backgrounds were from families who are already on board with understanding that we need to make some changes? Or were some of them where, you know, I'm just seeing from where I'm living that I'm not happy with this and therefore I'm going to be a part of it? I mean, I interviewed some from very liberal families that sort of are already taking action and, you know, they do things in their household to minimize their climate impact and sort of came from that perspective. But I also interviewed children of oil workers that know that their entire family's livelihood will be affected if what they're advocating for goes through. Right, right. And did they understand? So they understood that. that yeah. yeah. So at the end of the day, what are you wanting these groups to do? I know you're saying they want to show a voice and they want to make the police in whichever country or region they're in to take notice of what they're saying. Is it really as simple as that? Is there other things that we could be doing, kind of like a backdoor way of getting their getting the pollies to listen. What other solutions have we got other than standing in front of Parliament House and saying this just isn't right or standing at some of these international conferences that are going on? Are there other ways that these organisations can show that the youth mean business and we need to be doing this, this and this and can we take small steps to at least be heading in the right direction to make change? There's a few things there as well. So first, obviously, everybody that's not a youth can support these youth and can advocate for climate action themselves. Uh, Obviously, any policy change happens in numbers, and we need to show that this is something that the Canadian public cares about. So showing up in numbers is really important. But then some youth are circumventing sort of this idea of uh, slow change and are using sort of, for example, the legal system to challenge the oil industry and challenging our policymakers as saying that this is threatening their livelihood and their uh, lives and that this is not a safe childhood. So there is some of that happening. Some are using a lot more local solutions like targeting things like waste issues in their communities or public transportation, trying to increase public transportation and stuff in their region. So they're breaking it down into smaller goals as well. 
Well, that's good. And and what are some of the things that we've done here in Kingston? In Kingston just had a climate plan in review, which was good, but not maybe as ambitious as we need to be. But Kingston obviously is a smaller town too, so it is hard with funding. But some things that we still need to do, I think in general, is get our MPs to really say no to the oil industry and the oil and gas influence on our policies because we saw COVID as a crisis and we acted like it was a crisis, but we haven't really started acting like the climate crisis is a crisis. Right, right. It was, you know, I think one of the things that I found interesting going back to COVID right at the beginning, Kingston put on public transport for free to give people an opportunity to still get around, but the more we can use public transport, less cars are on the road. And so I thought that was a good good way of sort of helping the citizens in this case it was for COVID but the the flip side of that too it was getting more cars off off the road and and still allowing people to go to work and things so I thought that was one good thing that they did so that that's great so clearly there's a lot of things that are going on but before we finish because we are almost unfortunately at the end I'm going to get a totally different topic altogether Mm -hmm. You, you like competitive orienteering Yes, I was so, competed since I was a child. Yes. Right. Well, well, that's fantastic. I mean, I would, I would think that you know, Kingston has so many different places that you could practice that. What, what made you get into into that in the first place? I'm originally from Sweden, where orienteering is more of a public sport than it is uh, yes. in in Canada. So got got into it through that. But I think for me, it was sort of this combination of loving to run and be outside and. Right. Loving a brain challenge and a puzzle. So this was sort of the best of two worlds. No, that's great. And uh, are there orienting clubs here in Kingston? There is not. The closest is in Ottawa. Oh, wow. Okay. So clearly we need to sort of get one of those going because, like I said, we've got so many great places around here, you know, all the, the woods and trails and, and what have you. I thought that it would be perfect for that kind of thing. So, uh, well, good luck with that. And it's a shame, <laughs> you have to go to, shame you have to go to Ottawa for it. But um, at least you're doing it. And like you said, it's great to get outside and enjoy the, well, it's a bit cold right now, but yeah. the environment that we do have, and I think we, I've always felt very lucky living here in Kingston that we have such a beautiful city and so many green, lots of green space for us to enjoy what's going on. And of course, the lake at one end as well, which is, I still find fascinating how big it is. But there we yeah. go. <laughs> So is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your research? I mean, because you've given us a really good overview of what these youth groups are all about and what they're trying to do. I think it's important, like you said, that you need to understand looking at the research side of things as opposed to the public-facing view that people get of of some of these activist groups. So uh, are you happy with the way your research has gone? Yeah, I mean, I'm very happy. Um, I obviously hope that there will be more research in this field done in the next few years and that there will be more youth coming from these movements doing this type of research. Well, I was wondering, do you think with some of the work that you've put into this that they, the groups themselves can look at it and go, oh, you know, we hadn't thought about that. Maybe we need to change things slightly in the way we Yeah, so... 
So when my project is done, all the the groups will get access to my research. They'll also get access sort of the raw conclusions as well the ones that didn't make it into the or sort of themes that I identified that didn't make it into the final project in an effort to be collaborative instead of just extracting data from them love it love it that's why you're going to be very good at this (laughs) Amelia so thank you I really do appreciate you coming on and I wish you all the best and like I said you you told us you're almost at the end which is a bit scary at times isn't it but it must be nice to see it all come together Yes, it's very nice to see it all come together and hoping it will bring these organizations some help and ideas of what they can do. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for coming on the show and explaining it all to us. I know a lot more now and I won't be focused on just one area of what the media tells me. I'll be looking at other things too. So uh, you've explained that well. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. Good one. So that's it, everyone. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget, you can download the show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Just type in a Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and brought to you by the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science.